This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the SCANA studio today is Dr. Drew Lenham, who is Alumni Distinguished Professor at Clemson University, and a few years back he was named Alumni Master Teacher. Drew is the author of a number of books. He's by profession a zoologist and a forest resources person. He was an engineer before he saw the light for <laughs> biology. But he has written a wonderful memoir, The Home Place, Memoirs of a Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature. And it is a love affair. Drew, welcome to the journal. Thank you for having me, Walter. It's good to be here. It's really my pleasure. The Home Place. Let's just first of all identify that for everybody. Well, the, the home place is, is Edgefield, South Carolina. For, for, for the listeners who, know, who don't know where that is, it uh, sits right across the river from Augusta, Georgia. But uh, Edgefield, South Carolina, in a little corner of the county, southwestern corner called Colliers, mm. is, um, is, the, is the name of the community. But uh, that home place included my grandmother's house, which was built sometime, I don't know, in the 20s or maybe 30s. And uh, then my parents' house, which sat just across the pasture within hollering distance, um, which was actually a, a, a home that my grandfather used to, to rent out. But then my, my father moved into that house and my parents eventually added an old army barracks to that, uh, to that original house. And so that home place included sort of the forests and the, the fields that, um, that encompassed my grandmother's house, the ramshackle, as I call it in the book, and my parents' house, the ranch. How was the soil there? The soil, clay. <laughs> red, red, yes. a, a, a lot of clay, you know. Um, so it, it made for good dirt clods and, and throwing at your, your brother and your, and your sister and them throwing them back at me. But there was also um, this very rich, loamy soil in the bottoms. And um, so... You know, up on the hills, on some of those terraces, you know, you had rich soil that my father grew butter beans and and purple hull peas and corn and and all sorts of things. We had a family vegetable garden, which was pretty large. That that the clay soil was um, augmented by by manure, and you had ample supply. He kept what about thirty, forty head of cattle. Yeah, yeah, at, at most forty head of cattle and um, and a few hogs. For, for meat and, and sometimes chickens. So that place, you know, you ask about the soil, was such a diverse place, you know, because Daddy also, he was a school teacher as my mother was, and during the summertime they had to have income, and so my father would truck farm, and he grew watermelons. And the watermelons grew best up on this, in this field that was uh, up the road a little bit that was very sandy. And so here's this little sandy portion of land where Daddy knew that the watermelons would grow best and 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 taste sweetest from that place. Well, just like in Hampton County, of course, of course, <laughs> of course. You know, I, I mean, it's um, and that's the thing about Edgefield and and that ridge you go over into the eastern portions of the county. And I like to tell my friends from from Gaffney and the other places where they think they grow peaches well. <laughs> that um, that the ridge mm-hmm. um, in Johnston in um, eastern Edgefield County is where you find the absolute sweetest peaches, and and that's where the peach industry in South Carolina started back before 1860. Sure, people don't actually realize that they were shipping boxcars of peaches north to the New York market before the Civil War. Yeah, I mean it's. You know, when, when you talk about, well, for, for us, the summertime, you know, we had our own little little peach grove, and my, my parents actually would go to a cannery. There was an old cannery on Macedonia Street in Edgefield, and they would, all the peaches that they could can in about a two- or three-week period of time, um, and when I say canned, I mean steel cans. And so the processor was there, um, the peaches would be cooked, uh, canned, cooked, and we had peaches forever. So I can't say I ever got tired of peach cobbler, um, <laughs> but it it was um, it was nonstop. And so the bounty of Edgefield, sort of born of the soil in many ways, 
is part of what makes it an extraordinary place. Okay. Was that cannery in a school by any chance? You know, it was connected to a school. Okay. It but, was. Okay, because during, during the Depression, and it was the Clemson Extension Service, they, had, they put canneries attached to schools mm-hmm. really to encourage people to quit growing cotton and grow food to feed themselves because people were starving in South Carolina in the 30s. So th- I was just curious because that, that reminded me of those projects that were part of the New Deal. Well, Walter, that I mean, that's that's incredible that you mentioned that, because part of what I can remember from this cannery is outside of it and sort of cast aside were all these old desks. And and so um, uh, some of those desks were incorporated into other people's houses. And I can remember um, having a couple of them around my my parents house. And so, you know, not very many people want to be associated with desks beyond school, but um, there they were. And so it was always sort of curious to me, sort of this canning operation that would open up just for us to can peaches. Sometimes we get to can tomatoes and, and, and corn and things like that. But peaches were the main thing. Your parents were, were both school teachers. Uh-huh. Your mother had a very interesting education where she went to college. Right. Mama decided that she was going to – she was born in, in 96 – South Carolina, and um, and as a neighbor had Benjamin E. Mays right around the corner, and um, her sister, my my aunt Moselle, went to South Carolina State, and and Mama, being a little sister, decided that she didn't want to emulate her, mm-hmm. and so she chose to go out of state to Talladega College, which is in the Appalachian Mountains of of Alabama, a small teachers college. And uh, Mama went to, to Talladega. Um, that was a school that was training teachers and, um, and, and other professionals. But she always said she wanted to be different. Mm-hmm. And Talladega gave her that opportunity to be, to be different. And uh, from, from Talladega, she went to Fisk mm-hmm. University. So uh, I like to, to say that Mama sort of had, um, at least for, for that time, kind of a Southern Black College Ivy League Education absolutely. Um, Talladega was a good school, but but Fisk was top tier. Yeah, and and the Fisk Jubilee Singers yes. um, that the school is is known famously for. But Fisk has been responsible for producing so many of the elite in the in the black community yeah. um, that you know I look at my mother as is no less heroic and elite in what she did mm-hmm. as a school teacher. And your dad was a school teacher too. Yeah, Daddy was a school teacher, and Daddy was educated at uh, well a couple of places. One of the interesting places in Edgefield County, County was Bettis Academy. Now, now let's talk a little bit, a minute about Bettis because it is an important, not just an African American story, but a mm-hmm. South Carolina story. Yeah, Walter. It it was um, sort of in the fashion of um, I think they're called the Rosenwald schools. Okay. And but not formally one of those schools. Okay. All right, Rosenwald schools. For listeners who don't know, Julius Rosenwald, a very wealthy uh, northerner, would give money to southern schools, primarily African, rural schools, but primarily African American. Mm-hmm. It was not a complete donation, but he would match the funds that they would raise from themselves to build schools because in the early twentieth century, not much money was going into black schools in the American South. Certainly wasn't going into black schools in South Carolina. Right, right. So so Bettis Academy was was sort of in that fashion, uh, founded by uh, a former slave, Alexander Bettis, Reverend Alexander Bettis, who apparently could read but could not write. And so as that school was established, um, my grandfather, Joseph Samuel Lanham, taught there and and then my father attended junior college there in part, I believe. But but Daddy, you can look at some of the old old roles of the people um, who attended that school in Edgefield from Edgefield County, from Trenton in particular. But a particular interest to me, and and my mother's done a lot of the historic restoration on that campus now. And you could you could barter your tuition, mm-hmm. and so students were bringing in sacks of of grain or flour or jars of molasses, and they were working. So sort of uh, in the model of, of a school that some people are familiar with, a place like Warren Wilson up in North Carolina, mm-hmm. where you 
you sort of work your way towards an education. But Bettis Academy was uh, responsible for a large part of of what that community became, including my father. And, and Daddy left there. He left Bettis Academy and went to Claflin College in Orangeburg and uh, finished his education, his undergraduate education there, and and then went to Virginia State. And, and, and he and my mother actually went west to Oregon, to the University of Oregon in the late 50s in part because there were opportunities offered there for graduate education that weren't being offered in South Carolina, in the South, in well, part see, because of segregation. And of course, ironically, you know who paid for their education, don't you? The state of South Carolina. Yes. Because they couldn't <laughs> get a graduate degree here. The state of South Carolina would pay for African Americans to get graduate degrees somewhere else. To go elsewhere. To go elsewhere. And it's, you know, it's funny that, you know, the irony of, of the story of, of having to leave home to come back and appreciate it more at home in ways. They were both teaching at Parker Colored School in Edgefield. And as my parents went west, Mama would tell the story of not feeling comfortable in that car trip west until they got somewhere in Missouri. They would get on the other side of Missouri, and she said Missouri was odd. She said you could stop at one place, and it was highly segregated and and, and dangerous to be there, and you'd get to another place, and it was okay. But she said for sure once they got into western Missouri – into Nebraska, they were okay, and sort of this this uh, relative freedom that they felt in Oregon, and being able to be in this place where they could could learn without the same sort of stigma that they would have uh, would have faced here. So you're really talking about the late 1950s, late 1950s, early 60s. Okay, the civil rights movement was just getting started, mm-hmm. and African Americans were not welcome even to stop at, at filling stations. Yeah, it's, you know, as a, as, as a wildlife ecologist, I spent a lot of time studying range maps of, of species, of, of animals, sort of the things that constrain them or allow them to expand beyond where they would, uh, where they would begin. And for black folks in the late 50s, early 60s, and of course preceding that, and, um, and maybe even now, you had to watch where you went um, and how you traveled. And so, of course, it was a segregated society, and so you had to know where you'd be able to stop to buy gas, where you'd be able to stop to eat. And for the most part, you were going to have to go um, in some side or back door to eat. You were going to have to have carry out. You weren't going to be able to sit in a restaurant. And so um, my parents apparently mapped this out, and um, it was formally mapped out in a, in a, in a green book, in, mm-hmm. a, in a guidebook. That told black folks where they could go, where they could stop, the safe places to sort of rest. So, you know, my parents' range map as as an ornithologist, as as a person who studies birds and how they migrate, it intrigues me. I think my father, in some ways, was opened up to some some different sorts of possibilities from from a man, from a father who, you know, we mentioned the early 20s and sort of the Depression era. Uh, South and especially South Carolina. And part of the mystery and sort of the wonderful mystery that this book has opened up was how my grandfather made it in Edgefield County at that time. That was my next question. Your father was a World War I veteran. My grandfather. Your grandfather, rather, Mm -hmm. who actually served in a black unit that was a military unit, not engineers or drive truck drivers or what have you. Right, right. So he was a he was a combat veteran of World War One. Yeah, he was a combat veteran. Um, I actually I, I bought the book that was that was written about some of these units, and of course the Harlem Hellfighters are are the most famous unit, black unit that fought. But once those soldiers got overseas, um, they were mostly stripped of their U.S. uniforms, and um, and I believe even their their U.S. arms, and they were given over to the French. And so my grandfather fought, was in, in several of the famous battles um, in World War I, was injured there. Uh, my grandmother used to, to read me some of the letters that he wrote uh, about being in, in the horrors of, of trench warfare. And so he came back to the United States and, according to my grandmother, um, lobbied for them to, to go back to France in part 
because he had seen sort of a freedom there that um, that wasn't being expressed here in the United States. Then, um, after she apparently convinced him to to stay in Edgefield, um, he somehow in the 1920s when apparently things weren't going very well for South Carolina. I think the boll weevil had a little bit to do with the that. Bowl, well, right at the end of World War One, cotton prices collapsed. Mm-hmm. We went into about a three or four year drought. The boll weevil came in, and hmm. you know this was when you had the great mass exodus, primarily of African Americans to the north and whites west. Yeah, people just shut the farm doors and left. Well, that's a, an extraordinary thing to me because, again, I look at at that land and and we started this conversation with with soil and um, and with so much clay being there and assuming that a lot of what used to be topsoil ended up somewhere way down down the Savannah River. This man coming back to Edgefield when there didn't seem to be much there. And somehow on the precipice of even worse times in the Depression, was able to have a successful farm. And some of the documents that I found in, my, in the ruins of my grandmother's house, old farm service agency documents that indicated that uh, he was mapping the land, that he was, was rotating crops, but that he had also developed this successful milk and egg business in the midst of the worst of times, really sort of um, informs our story, I'd like to say. And and for me, and thinking about my parents later going west and going to all these places getting an education, I'd like to think that some of that time that, that Joseph Samuel Lanham spent on that land, farming it after being gassed and injured in World War One and being productive somehow on lands that other people weren't productive on, couldn't be productive on for various reasons, makes it a a heroic story to me. Well, it absolutely does. Now, did you actually know your grandfather, had he died before you were born? He did. He died before I was was born in in 1961, I believe, and um, and part of that was from from complications of those, those wounds that he never really recovered from. I, I can remember on my grandmother's, on her screen porch, there was this, this leg brace there um, that had a shoe attached. Um, he hadn't lost a leg, but apparently he um, had, had been maimed in, in one leg and um, apparently had some respiratory problems from being gassed during the war. And, and that, that helmet, that doughboy helmet, that he was issued when he was, I believe, at Camp Jackson. Mm-hmm. At Camp Jackson here in Columbia, that hung on the porch for a very long time. So I never knew him. I knew him from letters. I knew him from photographs, and I knew him from stories, and and in part knew him from my grandmother talking to his disembodied spirit most well, nights. Your grandmother, what a wonderful character. And I, I use that term because she was a character. <laughs> yes, she was. So... And you called her, you called her name. Mamatha. Mamatha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And extremely religious. Yeah. Very fundamentalist Baptist as near as I can. Oh, know. yeah. Very, very much so, Walter. She, um, she prayed every day, several times a day. She was always calling on, on the Lord for something. And, uh, and at night it was, um, you know, we would, we would end most nights. Of course, I stayed with her from before I was one year old until I was um, 16 and, now, and my now, father. Now, why was that? From from the stories I've been told, my grandmother, my grandfather had died. Joseph had died um, a few years before I came along. And my, my grandmother was lonely. You know, she was she was in this in this house, mostly by herself and um, and asked for me. Um, and, and so I was, I was sort of loaned to her long term. Um, and, uh, there, there wasn't any return date on me like a, like a library book. And so I was at her house, um, for, for half of my life up until I was, uh, um, a teenager until I was, I was 16 years old. 
Um, when I wasn't old enough to walk, someone would come pick me up and I'd go to school. And then at night, I'd go back to my grandmother's place. As I got older, um, I started walking from her house to my parents' house, um, which was a distance a little less than a quarter of a mile. But as a, as a kid, it just seemed like forever. And especially if you had to do it at night, yeah. um, it seemed much much longer. But and it was uphill to her house, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, her house sort of sat. Um, there was a spring down the hill from her house. Um, you left. I left her house. I had to walk up a little hill, crest the hill, and then go downhill to my parents' house. And the pasture in between was, for lack of a better word, was was really sort of like a holler. You know, just sort of this um, this valley almost and and now it's all grown up with uh, loblolly pine and sweet gum and and the deer love it but back then it was just wide open and you could see her house from my parents house and um just sort of this this idyllic setting of course her house was you know very much older and a tin roof mm-hmm. um that seemed more rusty than than intact and uh very little insulation mm-hmm. in the house. She had indoor plumbing, one one bathroom, and um, no air conditioning, of course, except for open windows at night, and an old Ashley heater that she um, that was in the bedroom that that heated the house. There was a fireplace that I never saw her light a fire in. Okay. That was really like an old pot-bellied stove, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, it was. She had a pot-bellied stove that she would occasionally light when she was quilting. Mm-hmm. And she would quilt in, in this, this room where the icebox was. I, I still have, I, I mostly call refrigerators iceboxes because that's what she called her refrigerator. But she had this other stove that was this really heavy cast iron beast that she cooked the most amazing meals in. And so there was this constant industry that, that we had, my daddy and and my brother and I, of uh, of cutting wood, to to make sure that she stayed warm and that she could cook, mm-hmm. and and so she never she never modernized, she never modernized, and and so calling on God all the time and and uh, praying all through the day and at night, she would have me read the Bible, and but at the same time, she did believe in the spirit world. Oh yeah, yeah, it was it was seamless. Almost that after I'd I'd read out of the Bible, usually something out of Proverbs, Mm -hmm. if I was lucky or if I was unlucky, Revelations, Mm -hmm. (laughs) read that. And then sometime over in the night, over in the early morning, sort of in this in these uh, quiet hours, she would she would begin to just talk out very lucidly and often call my grandfather's name and ask him questions. But then the next morning. She would tell me about these conversations, and she would tell me about these visits. And so I slept for a good portion of my childhood with the quilts over my head because I really didn't want to see who or what it was that she was having these conversations with. But so my grandmother, there was there seemed to never be any conflict between sort of um, this very religious Baptist, this fundamentalist. Um, sort of alignment that she had in the spirit world. I mean, she, you know, she she pulled pain out of my stomach with incantations and all sorts of things. So it was um, it was a different kind of upbringing for a kid of the seventies. Okay, you were born in sixty one. I was born in I was born in sixty five. So 65. I was I was at the tail end of the baby boom. Oh, okay. um, I was the last class Just, of colored babies out of the University Hospital in Augusta. My my birth certificate says that I was says I was colored, and says I was born in that segregated unit. In 1965. In 1965. That's the University of Georgia Medical School yeah, Hospital. Yes. Yes. In Augusta. Mm-hmm. Okay. Drew, we have to pause a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Dr. Drew Lanham of Clemson University about his memoir, The Home Place. The title mm-hmm. is that what they, they called. Your father's farm, literally the home place, right? Yeah, yeah. It was it was the home place, and um, you know I know it's it's sort of a sort of a common name, but um, you know I, I heard that more after I, I left it. 
you know, um, that, that it was, that it was the home place and that sort of, that, that title sort of stuck with me. And I, you know, if I may, I mentioned my parents leaving home to sort of gain an education to come back so they could in some ways be more appreciated here. Um, this story, at least as far as the writing of it really sort of took, it took me leaving home to, to sort of recognize it. And so one night in a little draconian dorm room at a tiny college in North, the Northeast kingdom of Vermont called Sterling college. I, I know the Northeast kingdom, <laughs> you know, the Northeast kingdom. And, and I, I can, I can say that because I spent, uh, a time as visiting professor at Middlebury College, which, oh, is, yes. which is not in the Northeast Kingdom. Right, right. But the Northeast Kingdom is sort of a pejorative like the dark corner here in South Carolina. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, I never <laughs> I never thought of it like that, but you're you're exactly right. It uh, you know, it's it and for me it had this sort of familiar feel um, of just uh, a rural base, um, not having to lock your doors of bird song being more prevalent than than any other sound. And so to go to that place to Sterling College, which at the time I think had an enrollment of 123, 124 students. Well, why'd you go there? I, you know, Walter, I went there in part to meet, to try to meet a Southern writer, a Southern nature writer named Janice Ray, who wrote a book called Ecology of a Cracker Childhood. And I read that book after having read, of course, the Sand County Almanac and Thoreau's Walden and, and, and so much, so much other nature writing. But Janice's book was about the South. And it was written lyrically and it was written evocatively. And I could almost hear her voice. And I wanted to meet the person who had written about, you know, my homeland and such in, in, in such a moving way. And so she was at the time sort of a Georgia expat. She was living up there in Brattleboro. And uh, there was a writing workshop up there called the Wild Branch Nature Writing Workshop. And my department chair at the time sensed, I think, that um, I was ready to, to kind of make a move academically, at least in terms of how I was communicating conservation. And she gave me the go ahead and some support to actually go to Vermont for a week to this writing workshop. And I was given an assignment by, um, <laughs> by, by my workshop facilitator, um, Diana Capel Smith. I'll never forget it. I was the only man in this writing circle, and she gave us this assignment. And she said, I want you to write 500 words tonight about place, about a place that moves you in some way. And of course, I, you know, I've been an academician and I was sort of feeling like a fish out of water being in this place. I was the only black man there. I was one of the few men there. And then being in this circle asked to write about place. I wasn't given any sort of data. I didn't have any statistics to write about. And I sat in that little room that night trying to think about a place, trying to think about a place. And, um, and then it fell on me. Uh, it was home, Edgefield, South Carolina. And I wrote from maybe 10 to 2 a.m. that morning. And instead of 500 words, um, I produced somewhere between 3,000 and 4,000 words. Wow. And it just poured mm -hmm. from me. And that was the beginning of this book. That was the beginning of this book. The, the next day, we were asked to share. I was, I don't know, third or fourth in the reading circle. And these women were reading these incredibly moving pieces that were were highly personal and sort of unlike anything that I had ever heard before. Uh, certainly within the realm of me being a college professor, I mean, you know, people deliver papers and and folks um, sometimes have a hard time staying awake through it. <laughs> this was there wasn't a dry in the house, and it came to me. But I'm thinking, okay, I've written this thing, and I'll read it, and we'll go on. And I couldn't make it through the first paragraph. It was a catharsis for me. It was really the first time that I had mourned my father's death um, as a 15-year-old and really the first time that I had sort of also mourned the loss of, of that land, of, of growing up in that place. 
Well, let's let's touch on those for a minute. Your father died as a very young man. He's about 49, I think. He's 52. 52. 52, same age as I am now. And then you're not happy with what happened, how your kinfolk, what your kinfolk did, to, not your grandmother, but what your kinfolk did to the, the home place. Yeah, it was... Um, you know, it was sort of this this whirlwind. My father died of a of a heart attack. Drove himself halfway. They were my parents were working in Aiken, were teaching in Aiken. Drove himself with my mother sitting in the passenger seat halfway to the university hospital, and um, I never saw him alive again. I was at track practice. My sister Julia picked me up, and uh, my father had died by the time I got to the hospital. So after we buried my father and started tending to this land and cattle and all of this 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 life that we'd had, things sort of fell apart. And my father died without a will. My my grandfather apparently had, had never had a will. And so um, the phenomenon of heirs' property, which I know you're familiar with. I, yeah, yes. And having worked with several estates, the fact that your father died without an estate mm-hmm. meant that his siblings got to share in the estate with his wife and children. Yeah, yeah. And so they, you know, the 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 200, um, roughly 200 acres that m- much of which was was covered in in mature forests, mature hardwood forests with with trees. I can remember um, it taking two or three people to, to sort of put their arms around um, once once my father died. Uh, it didn't take long for for the timber buyers to sort of move in. And um, I remember by the time some of the sale finally went through, um, we had divested ourselves of the cattle. Um, the spring was just too tough to handle, and so Mama had punched a well. And I was in my freshman year at Clemson, and I would get these visits. I would get calls and then visits from attorneys, and they would try to get me to sign these papers, and they'd say, well, I got a check for you if you'll just sign these papers. And and fortunately, my mother had called me and, and she had warned me. She said, don't sign anything that, that anybody brings to you. And uh, after a lot of uh, battling and fighting and, um, and, and wrangling, my mother was able to retain about seven acres for each of us, including the land on which the house set. The rest of it went under the saw. And I remember visiting the land uh, after my freshman year, going home for spring break and driving down to the house because I needed to get some stuff out of my room to take back to Clemson. And it was devastated. I, I hardly recognized it because all the trees were gone. It had been clear cut. It had been clear cut. I remember going down to the creek, Chevis Creek, where Daddy taught us to fish and much of what could not be hauled away on a log truck had been pushed into the creek, which violates all sorts of best management practices for, for, for forestry. But I think in sort of this rush when, when my dad's siblings were approached with this idea of getting more money for trees than they had ever envisioned, that it was a windfall. And I think they probably took the first offer. Mm-hmm. And there was no replanting done. Um, the land um, has come back in many ways voluntarily, but of course it's not been been managed. You know, we have, each of us, each of my siblings, we have seven acres. My mother has, has seven acres. So we have 35 acres okay. of it. Uh, much of that the beavers have retaken. <laughs> and, and so the beavers and wood duck and, uh, and I'm sure some pretty some pretty decent whitetail bucks are down there. The turkeys are there. My brother lives on the land and sort of um, holds on to to part of a legacy in that way. Otherwise, it's in the hands of my of my cousins mostly. Okay. All of my aunts are, are dead now. And your grandmother's house. My grandmother's house is owned by um, by one of her daughters. Well, now one of her her granddaughters, and um, and their children. And incredibly, it still stands. It's it's been it's been ransacked. I think the pickers found it pretty quickly. But to go down there and to see my grandmother's home place, to see her ramshackle house, it still stands. That smokehouse still stands. And out of that clay soil, 
that daffodils and snowdrops are still coming up every spring is um, is is something else. And so it you know that sort of mystical part of <laughs> of who she taught me to be sort of survives our um, my parents' house. I was down there during the Christmas holidays this past year, and uh, and decided I I deer hunted my my grandmother's uh, yard literally a few years back just to to sort of be there mm-hmm. to sort of try to recapture some of what was somehow um, and had a very sort of surreal experience there and then this past Christmas sat on the porch of my of my parents house of that ranch and in sitting there for probably three or four hours but in the quiet of this very dark pre-dawn up until almost noon it was the longest period of time that I had spent at that house since I'd left it back in 1983. Mm. So uh, the land has the most value for, for white-tailed deer and wild turkeys and hopefully bobwhite quail and warblers at this point. But I, I still feel in many ways like like I own, that we own um, all of that. But the deed and title says that I've got seven acres. That's what I've got. Okay. Well, we discussed part of your title, The Home Place, mm-hmm. and it's that is a very touching memoir. But then the subtitle is Memoir of a Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature. <laughs> Let's talk about it. You're an ornithologist as well. You're a bird watcher. Yeah. <laughs> and although your birth certificate said you were a colored man. Do you want to you amplify in your introduction as to why you deliberately chose that term? Mm-hmm. It, it's something that a person of color might not want to use in the 21st century. Yeah, I you know I'm 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 a little bit stubborn in in some things. It's um, you know that's that that's sort of how I started out. You know, from that university hospital and and being and being colored. Um, but as, as James Brown, you know, used to say, I'm, I'm black and I'm proud. That's, that's part of who I am. But then, um, being the scientist and, and being someone who's, who's always sort of in search of kind of the next truth or at least piece of data that helps define the truth, you know, you claim all of who you are. Mm -hmm. I think that's an important thing. I mean, society obviously defines us by some line or title. And so, you know, most recently we've all sort of become hyphenated in some sort of way. And 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 I decided um, pretty early on that I wanted to be inclusive in writing. And as much as you can be inclusive in a memoir and, and trying to remember most accurately all of the people or people at least who've contributed to your life in ways that you know of, that that it that it then bears that there are all sorts of people that have that have contributed to who it is that I am as a living being, and so most recently I, I decided that I wanted to to sort of follow up on that and and to to find out who it is that I am genetically, okay. and uh, and so taking several of these uh, these genetic tests where you you take a uh, a swab of a of your cheek, and you send it in, and like magic, several weeks later, they send you a packet of information that spills out in charts and graphs and colorful pictures who it is that you are. And um, when I got back one of those one of those tests, it says, "Well, guess what? You are seventy five to eighty percent Central and West African, and and your mother's people are most likely from." the area of Sierra Leone and those associated areas and and most closely resemble genetically the Mende people, um, which is interesting because Mama and, and her Talladega classmates used to walk by on a daily basis sort of that, uh, that picture of the Amistad and the Mende warrior Sinke. Mm-hmm. And so that defines me in one way, my father's people um, from Cameroon, from Central Africa and Bamilake, and probably being the people they're most closely associated with. But that only defines a part of me. You know, I do another test and it says, well, the rest of you is 
Western European and <laughs> Scandinavian and Iberian and Native American and Southeast Asian and even a tinge of Neanderthal. So with all of that thrown into the mix, you know, I'm, I'm defined as a, as, a, as a black man, as a black American, and, and proudly claim and hold on to that. But then there's so much more, I think, underneath all of us that defines who we are. So I think in being colored, um, there's, there's I, don't, I don't see any shame in being colored as a human being because genetically we're all so tightly linked in ways that I think needs to be acknowledged. But then sort of historically and who we were as colored folk and the strides that that black Americans had to make in spite of whether it was going west to Oregon or being in a place like Edgefield and finding a way to be successful and to have a family and land and a farm to produce folks who who were successful themselves. I think that then colored becomes to me sort of a badge of, of honor. And your love affair with nature. Hmm. Yeah. You know, it's uh, I tell people that I, I, I grew up with uh, really two and a half television channels. And, um, and those two and a half television channels certainly offered enough in terms of cartoons and some educational programming that, that helped me be sort of a, a regular kid. But we all spent a lot of time outdoors. I was given sort of free reign to roam. Sometimes it would take me hours to get home from my grandmother's place to my to my parents' house, especially on a Saturday morning um, when there wasn't the obligation of school and I'd got my chores done. Then you could wander. You could just wander. And so in, in all that wandering, you notice some of everything. Uh, colors, you notice scents. You're just sort of assaulted by just sort of this sensual kind of buffet and I can remember that. I can, and, and the sense of smell is one of our strongest sort of links to memory. Being able to go into a house and to recognize scents from that, that take you decades back. And so when I'm, I'm walking through the woods, one of the things that I always do if I see a, a lightwood stump, I'm, I'm going to look for a shred of that lightwood stump or knock a little piece away so that the people who are walking with me, when I peel away that piece of heart pine, and a lot of times it's glowing yellow mm-hmm. and people are able to smell it and they can smell that strong. It, it almost smells like fire. And, um, you know, those are the sorts of things that to me color my life and I can I can close my eyes and I can smell and I can see better sometimes um, sort of in that darkness. Mm. You got all your degrees at Clemson. Mm-hmm. You went on the faculty there. Yeah, it was, um, you know, really my first intention was not to go to Clemson. It was my first intention was uh, to, to go somewhere that I could major in, in a biological science and, and, and to be closer to the, the field that I wanted to be in, which um, too, not too many people were encouraged about. They said, well, you know, you're a smart black kid who's good at math and science. You got to be an engineer. You got to be an engineer. And then in the end of it, after you become an engineer and you've you've got this this great job, you can do birds on the side, <laughs> and um, and you had you had a full ride. You had a Dupont scholarship. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I I I'd worked at the Bum Plant <laughs> for I'd worked the Savannah River Plant. Now the Savannah River site. Um, I worked there uh, as a high school senior, and then I worked there for three summers uh, as a college intern, and was making. Uh, great money for a college kid. But, Walter, I was always, always looking for ways to sneak over to the Savannah River Ecology Lab. And um, when did you have your epiphany or your attempt? I'm like, I can't take this engineering anymore. Oh, man. You know, it was, um, this was in, in 1985 mm-hmm. and uh, spring day. As a matter of fact, and and I was on the way to to one of the many classes that I was I was doing pretty well in, but that I just disliked. It was just every day going to class was more than 
than than the task that most students hate. I, I deplored it. And I'd had this experience in the summer seeing what engineers did. And and engineers are wonderful people. They're the ones, the people who are passionate about it are the ones who need to build our bridges, not me. Um, and And I was on the way to this class and I stopped about halfway there. I'd been begging my scholarship sponsors almost since I'd been in school to let me change my major to something that I thought was more appropriate and that I was passionate about and they kept refusing. And so that day, that spring day in 1985, when I just stopped in my tracks, I turned around, I went back to my room and I, I said, I, I can't, I can't do it anymore. And I never attended another engineering class after that and found amazingly, um, relatively little support. Um, I, I, talked to my engineering uh, sponsor. They said, well, your, your scholarship is gone. You've, you violated the conditions. People were asking, they said, well, you want to major in zoology. What are you going to do with that? Are you going to work in a zoo? How are you going to support yourself? You've given up this one of four national scholarships and uh, took out a student loan for a semester and came back to my, got a, got a letter out of my mailbox one day from this place called, from Amick Farms. I had no idea where this place was, and uh, but I opened up this letter and it was, it was a five thousand dollars scholarship. Five thousand dollars back in nineteen eighty five went a long way towards tuition. Chick Amick was on the board at Clemson University, and it was Walter. It was a scholarship that had fallen. As many of these scholarships are first designated, this one was initially designated for someone majoring in poultry science from Lexington, Newberry, or I believe Saluda. And apparently there weren't any people there majoring and it kept falling, falling, falling. And finally, I was somewhere on the list that this scholarship fell to me. And so here, in many ways, even though I had been bird watching all my life, here I was saved by a chicken <laughs> or chickens. Um, so that that day in 1985, when I stopped on the sidewalk, turned around, went back to my apartment and said, I have to do what my heart tells me is sort of, um, well, it's why I'm even here right now. Well, before we wrap it up, I'll, I want you to read a favorite passage from your book. Sure. I'll, I'll read a passage from a chapter called Thinking. All right. And the epigraph is from George Washington Carver. Nothing is more beautiful than the loveliness of the woods before sunrise. I think about land a lot. In fact, I am possessed by it. I think about the lay of the land, how it came to be, what natural forces have changed it, what human forces have mangled it, how concrete and asphalt doom it. I think about the promise it holds for the future and what history it preserves from the past. I think about how it rises and runs, lifts and falls. I think about hills and hollers. I think about great rifts and grand canyons. I think about mountains and monadnocks. I think about swamps and sandhills. I think about draws and drains. I think about the rivers running through land, the animals burrowing under it, and the birds flying over it. I think about the sounds that come from the land, the whining of katydids and crickets on steamy summer nights, the incessant serenading of red-eyed vireos on newborn spring days, and the chattering of squirrels hiding acorns on chill, crisp autumn mornings. I think about clapper rails applauding at the edge of a salt marsh stage and the teletyping dictations of pine woods tree frogs in a rain-soaked longleaf savanna. I think about the solace of winter whispered on a northwest wind and the mournful groaning of the bare-boned trees. I think about the soil underneath it all, its shifting sandiness, rough rockiness, rich loaminess, and sticky clayiness. I think about the perfume of place, the pleasant mustiness of decaying leaves on a blue ridge forest floor, the sulfur stink of a Beaufort mud flat at low tide, the drunken sweetness of an orchard in October. Thank you. You're not an engineer, sir. <laughs> With all due respect, that passage is so lyrical, as are others. You do have a love affair, not just with nature, but clearly with South Carolina. 
Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign, Drew. So any last words for our listeners? Well, I, I hope that everyone sees themselves as colored somehow. I think it's a, I think it's a unifying – the land and, and what we do in South Carolina for nature, I think, is in some ways superlative. And I think we hang on to those things. And by seeing ourselves in nature somehow through the colors of nature, I think that, that we can come together hopefully for not just a better South Carolina, but, uh, but better in many ways going forward. Dr. Drew Lanham, Alumni Distinguished Professor at Clemson. Thank you so very much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you, Walter. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did on so many levels. As you know, I care about the environment. Drew Lenham is a scientist. I had no idea what to expect from a zoologist until I read his book. This man truly has a love affair with the world in which he grew up, which was rural Edgefield County, but now with the entire state of South Carolina. His book, The Home Place, is well worth reading. The lyrical way in which he writes, it makes it a joy. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.